not only is all the stuff from 2022 about to like land, the plan for the next set is just not stopping. It, there's full steam forward. They're like really want you to feel that the web has your back when it comes to building something and empowering you as a developer to build a custom experience. Hi, and welcome to PodRocket. I'm Sean, and joining us again on the podcast is Adam Argyle, Chrome, CSS, and UI developer relations at Google, works on the CSS Working Group, host of the GUI Challenges on YouTube, and co-host of the CSS Podcast. Here to talk about how CSS has changed in 2022 and what we're looking forward to in 2023. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Yo. So for newer listeners, I know we've had you on before, but do you mind giving us a quick rundown of, of who you are and... and what you do and what you've been up to. Yeah, I'm on Chrome. I get to listen to the engineers hacking on brand new features. I get to be in the working group, watch the new features get proposed and chatted about, and I get to be involved. And kind of my role in that, at least personally, is to represent the wider uh, development community. I've been building apps for like 20 years. Um, I feel like I've got a pretty good hang on how things flow through the web and how things get built. And so I'm there representing hopefully the average person that makes a bunch of mistakes and holds things wrong because I hold things wrong all the time. And uh, apparently that's helpful in a lot of ways. Um, and I just love building stuff. I just, the way that things touch and animate and um, that's the that's the thing I go for. Like whatever it takes to make a really nice uh, UI UX. Awesome. Yeah, no, it's fun. You get to be like the guinea pig and, and the first one to kind of experiment with things. And yeah, I mean, you've got a, a lot going on there in that, that intro. What have you been like most recently work on? Do you have any like new projects? Yes, I just released a new website. Uh, it's like my indie social website. So it kind of looks like Twitter, kind of looks like Mastodon. Every time I look at someone's phone, they're scrolling a feed of cards. And I'm like, well, how about I just make a website where I do that myself? And then I built it with a bunch of personas. So if you if you visit it, it's nerdy.dev. Um, you'll see posts from dad, which is me and my dad role. You'll see posts from Google, which would be me and my Google avatar. And so I have these like, it's all it's all me, but there's multiple personas and you can kind of consume the content that way. And anyway, it's been a really fun experiment um, for using latest technologies. So we're going to be talking about a lot of the stuff that's, I get to go deploy that on a live site and progressively enhance it. And then I also get to have fun and design something myself. I get to own my content. And I love that about it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I was checking out your site before this and it looks pretty sleek. That endless feed is kind of like the UI that uh, a lot of things are, are adopting now. So when you last came on, we talked about the Google I.O. conference and your talk, the state of CSS in 2022. So I guess just to kind of kick things off, like how have you seen it, the state of CSS change throughout the remainder of 2022? Yeah, that interop effort kicked a whole bunch of butt. They, they shipped, so this they meaning... Firefox, Safari, and Chrome, they worked together, landed some features at the same time sometimes, which also, you know, that takes that anxiety out. Like, can I use it yet? Oh, I can't like yet, but here it is. It's landed. So that's something like Cascade Layers, totally available now. It's all over my site. My site's built entirely on top of Cascade Layers. Um, so yeah, 2022 had a lot of success. They promised a lot of features and they delivered on over half of them. And I think they're finishing up the rest like in Q1 of this year. And they're already working on the 2023 effort and what they're going to, you know, how are they going to make compatibility better? What features are they all working together on? And we're heading towards at scope getting solidified at nest getting solidified. We have a view timeline. Well, yeah, they're getting solidified as well. And just some really, really exciting stuff. But scope and nesting and cascade layers specifically have changed the way CSS looks. And it's just like when ES6 came out 
where it just started to look different. You're like, this JavaScript looks different. Your CSS, it's starting to look a little different. And I like it. The The structure feels right. We're drier. We have more power. Um, just with a little bit of learning you got to do. There's new tools. Got to figure out where they fit in your belt. And I think we're going to see people adopt these things over the next year or two as they start new projects, as they sort of ease themselves into these new, maybe more advanced. I put quotes in advanced because I feel like stuff seems advanced when you don't understand it. But then once you get it, you're like, oh, that's not so advanced anymore. No, it's not so scary looking. Anyway, and I always do that. Like cascade layers looked really scary to me at first. I was like, this isn't helpful. I never had this problem. And now that I understand the stuff they do, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely down with cascade layers. So. Yeah, no. And then the, the stuff seems advanced. Like I totally agree. Like when you haven't used it before, but some of them like are solving a previous pain point. So it's actually making things like simpler and, and easier in some sort of ways. And uh, the interop stuff is, is really cool to see. I guess like my cynical persona would have thought that all of the browser implementers were kind of like racing to like implement features like before other people maybe to get more adoption uh, or something. So it's it's actually awesome to see that uh, the the vendors are working together on on implementing those features because just you know it's a big user win when they when they do it together. Totally, yeah. We all win. They just don't be as competitive or something. Yeah, it's like a the trade off is very nice. I agree. So you mentioned that your site is using the CSS layers. So for for folks who might not have listened to the our previous podcast where we had you on, do you mind like kind of going into like what what that helps um, and kind of the pain point that that solves for. So the way that you structure your styles to, to before cascade layers was you'd have an index dot style file, whether it was SAS or stylus or whatever. And in there you would have a whole bunch of imports and those imports would start out really naive, be like, Oh, just grab my variables. Oh, just grab the normalize. And then all then you start adding components and then you start adding new lines and comments in that file. And that comment says, well, this is the chunk of these and these need to come before those. And then you have this ordering that starts to happen in that file. And that file's order is super important, right? This is how things get overridden and it's very linear. It's top of the file is the weakest, things at the bottom are the strongest. And Cascade Layers removes that requirement. It gives you this ability to be like, well, here, import this file now, um, but put it into this layer that actually makes it weaker. And then you're like, okay, we'll import this other file and put it into this layer that makes it stronger. And so that order becomes way less meaningful. And what becomes meaningful is what layers do you have and when did you instantiate them? So at the top of my uh, index.style sheet right now, I have, well, let's see, I could actually take a look at it. I have uh, at layer base comma components. I have two layers, but I also have a lot of sub layers inside of those. So it's like, if you kind of think about like the tip of an iceberg, those are the two initial layers. So base is all the things like normalize my themes. So right, I've got my light and my dark themes and so I have utilities. I have like styles for when there's no JavaScript. So things that are just sort of like weak and uh, foundational are all together. And then later, if I wanted to load something else at any other time, I could I could put something up into that layer, even though it loads way later. So I have like a lot of flexibility and a lot of options there. And then after that one is the components layer, which again, I'd want my components to override the things happening inside of a normalize and a reset and a base. So I give them a little bit more strength by promoting them in this other layer. And then inside of there, they have all these little sub layers that are pretty much the name of the component. So when you go inspect my, my site, you'll see in the style side pane, uh, components dot you know, table of contents, and then all the table of contents styles are right there. It might even combine with some other component styles, but probably not just the way that I've organized it. And the styles pane, the name of the layer really helps you understand why and what is overriding something. 
So uh, we talked earlier about cascade layers being this authoring convenience, but there's a debugging convenience where you go look to see the style side pane is no longer this dumping ground, this long list of random stacking cascading styles. It's become grouped and you get to see all my component stuff is at, at the top because that's the layer that they're in. Underneath them is all the normalizing supporting styles. And then underneath that is all the you know user agent styles coming from the browser. And it just feels right to have this organization and this naming that brings clarity to reading and authoring as well as debugging and loading. So it has all these kind of cool benefits. You do have to name something though. You know, people don't like naming stuff, but I don't know. I find these layers kind of fun to name and they're so innocent. I don't know. Very convenient to be able to have like the layers kind of reflect like the structure of your app. And like, kind of like you said, and then when you're in the dev tools, you have, you know, the name that you gave it and you kind of can associate where that lives in your code. Is it is it kind of accurate to think of it as decoupling like the cascade order from the order in which you actually import things? That's a great way to think of it. Um, it gives you this ability to, on every import, just put it into a layer. So that initial order goes out the window and it now comes down to organization. Yep. Another CSS feature that was uh, in, in the, the state of CSS in 22 was the has pseudo selector. This one really jumped out at me when I was watching that because it's just like so immediately convenient. And you can like think of a lot of ways that, that would be useful. Now, some of them maybe you kind of have to see in practice or an example. It's like, oh, okay, I see how that would help with that. But the has one reminds me of some of those jQuery selectors back when back when people were using uh, jQuery for everything. So um, yeah, how has is, how is that one turned out in, in 2023? Has it kind of surpassed expectations in usage? That's a really, really great way to pose that question. I think it got the most usage of any of the other features that came out, rightfully so, because it's sort of innocent in the way that you can introduce it. Whereas like Cascade Layers is, theoretically, you can layer in Cascade Layers on top of an existing site. I haven't found that very many people do that, um, especially, well, whatever, we could get into that later. But has is so much easier to toss in. Um, you can also check for support of it. So my site, for example, uses has to, if you don't have JavaScript enabled, you can still filter all of the home feed based on the options because I'll look to see what radio button you select. And, and then I'll use has to be like, hey, web page, do you have the CSS radio button selected? Oh, you do. Then go ahead and target the list and filter out all, set display none to anything that isn't that filter. And so I have this no JavaScript, easy H, like CSS upgrade, progressively enhancement story, all using has. And it's so easy to just add in in little bits or in your forms. It's really helpful in forms where pretty much any pseudo class, like if you did like colon invalid or colon valid, or any of those little pseudo classes, they all become has superpowers. And so, yeah, adoption is really good. I, I feel like one thing, though, gets missed really common when people are talking about it because they call it a parent selector. Uh, a colleague, Jay, called it the family selector, which I really like because it's more than just a parent selector. But one of the key features is that it allows you to change the subject of a selector. Until it has, you could only select the thing at the far right of your, of your selector. And with has, you can select something in the middle or the beginning or the end. And you can change what is the actual target of the selector in the middle of it. And uh, anyway, it's it's a superpower. It's a very cool, easy upgrade and has so much potential. I think we've barely scraped the surface so far. I guess that kind of leads me to ask, like, how do you think about introducing features like that, that kind of, you know, maybe not fundamentally change CSS, but really change the kinds of things that people can do in CSS versus something that they previously would be doing in JavaScript? Are you intentional about like trying to prevent maybe feature creep or are there sort of responsibilities for CS and JavaScript? And do you kind of think about 
um, sort of like a Venn diagram there? Yeah, that's sort of like naturally for how I like to build components. I, I start them out as HTML, CSS, push them as far as I can go. Again, my site does this. It works with no JavaScript, but if JavaScript's enabled or CSS has is enabled, I kind of add and layer in these conveniences based on the capabilities of a browser. Um, I don't expect everybody to do that, but that's the way I like to work is how can I how can I get away with no JavaScript is usually my initial, even though I love JavaScript, I write a ton. It turns out JavaScript's pretty necessary a lot of the time. So I shoot to not have it and I shoot to not have complex, you know, at scope rules or complex cascade layers or complex has use cases. Um, but if I find myself in a scenario where adding one has selector can remove a bunch of something else, I'm like, well, that's a trade-off I'm totally down to do. So yeah, I do. I try to be really conscious about being minimal as a foundation and then pick and choose UX conveniences to just dollop on top. And do you do you find yourself frequently like disabling JavaScript and just kind of getting a sense of like how well your site works without that enabled? Or do you at this point kind of assume that everyone's going to be using JavaScript? Yeah. So when I made my site, I sent it to a friend and they were like, hey, it almost works with Node.js. And I was like, oh, I totally didn't even test that. And I'm happy that it works almost. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I know exactly what I need to change, though. Like I had a the card. If you click the whole card, it will take you to the to the URL for the destination of that blog post or whatever. And if you have JavaScript disabled, you can't click the whole card. I didn't do the anchor wrapping the whole card trick. There's like accessibility stuff I didn't want to deal with there. And so instead, I just made it so that there is a link that goes to the detail there. And if JavaScript is enabled, I just hide the link. So it's like I get to deliver a really strong, foundationally capable website uh, and then trickle these different things on top. Yeah. Nice. And that kind of speaks to like how powerful some of these new CSS features are that you kind of almost accidentally have a site that's that's working without JavaScript, without even having to be like super intentional about it from the start. Yep. And that was that is really nice. It also, though, got complex really, really fast for if you visit the site, it kind of feel simple. You're like, all right, it's got some filters on the side and a list of cards. And then the cards go to a detail. Like, how hard could this be? turns out there's a lot of complexity nested inside of things that look simple. So, and it inevitably gets somewhere kind of complex, but I like to try to keep it simple as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you saw, but CSS Tricks did a survey in 2022 about CSS. And so they found that 46.7% 46.7% of respondents were only aware of 40% or less of the features that were covered in, in, in 2022. And so I'm kind of curious what, like what your take on that is, because to me, it actually sounds kind of quite high. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious at like how, how that matches up with your expectations for like adoption of these new features. Yeah. There's been a lot, there's been a lot of surprises in terms of adoption. Like there was also a stat on how many people are using CSS grid and it's terribly low. It's like so low. You're like, do, do people even know it exists? Is this like really bizarre? Like it's been around for five or six years. Like why isn't it there? But then I go look at color also. And we had HSL and RGBA. Uh, those came out in 2010. And then if you go look at the Web Almanac, which summarizes all the color uses on the web, no one's using them. The amount of people using HSL is surprisingly low, even though it's definitely superior to RGB or hex, uh, so much more flexibility, yet there's no adoption. Um, and then we could take has, for example, which got adoption very quick. People knew what it was. It was adopted. Uh, and it kind of like flew right by some of these other ones that we thought would have more adoption. So the I don't really know how to 
solve this yet. I just know that I think a lot of people are under information overload. You know, CSS has come out with a lot of features in the past few years. So I totally get it if you're, you know, you're like, I'll research it when I have time. You know, like I've got a task on hand and I've been fine without these features. Maybe I'll continue. I think that's how color is too. Everyone's like, I, I'm fine with hex. You know, my relationship with color is very simple and I like it that way. So they don't need to go try color manipulations in HSL or something like that. I would love to see more adoption. I don't really know how to encourage it more. We put out lots of articles. We do lots of videos and, you know, we have the podcast and I feel like we're doing the best we can to saturate the knowledge and make it as simple as possible, but it's hard. Um, There's HTML features coming out, JavaScript features coming out, CSS, even for me, where it's kind of my entire job, I have a hard time staying on top of it. CSS features come out all the time and I'm like, oh, no one told me. And they're like, well, it was in the list of, and I'm like, the list is huge. So how am I supposed to know? So I feel the same way other people do that. There's just so much, you have to grab on to whatever initially intrigues you. And then, I don't know, branch out as you need it, but yeah, grid low, HSL low, cascade layers, super low, even though they're available. I don't know. I think we'll just see more adoption over time. I think, I think at your point, it's like, that people kind of have something that they that they know works. For example, like Flex solved so many pain points when that came out. And, you know, whenever I have sort of like a positioning problem, like Flex is like the first thing that I think to use. And it turns out that it can solve like most of those problems. And I, I typically will find, find out about new CSS features when I'm like debugging something or like trying to Google like how to do some sort of positioning or, or, or thing in CSS that like my existing tool set can't solve. And then I'll see like, oh, here's this new CSS feature. What are the, what does the browser compatibility look like? And then that's when I find out about a new thing, not necessarily right when it comes out in sort of like the marketing, the marketing channels. The container one is, is another one that I was surprised at the usage was, was low. Cause that one also, you know, seems kind of like the has pseudo selector, uh, seems incredibly useful. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up container queries. Cause it's another one in the same realm. We're like, we wanted it. We, we could easily articulate all the, all the reasons we needed it for many years. It felt like a huge gap that was just like, why is this not here? And then it lands and it's not deployed on like very many production sites at all. It's on my site, but in a very unique case, I was even like looking at my site going, I need to add container queries. I just, I just want to. And I was like, but I don't have a reason. So I'm not gonna. And then I, and then I had a reason and I was like, yeah, my site finally has container queries. Um, and it was like a, the Japanese layout of my site. So if you view it in Japanese from like top to bottom, right to left, a media query that queries the width of the viewport is irrelevant. The viewport could be, you know, really wide 1024 or above. Uh, you're like, well, the layout is now going sideways. So the width just became the height and I'm not interested in the width and I don't really want to write a height query. That feels wrong. And so I used a container name on the body element, and then I just query the container's inline size. And the inline size does adapt when it goes sideways. And all of a sudden, I made one query that solved every language, and I didn't have to worry about it. And that is cool superpowers to me. But yeah, why isn't this in more people's hands? I'm not sure. Um, even hear people like uh, Scott Talinsky on Syntax FM. He's just like, I've wanted container queries forever, and I'm still not shipping them. I don't know why. And it's just like self-reflecting on what is this? What is this feeling? I don't know what I'm feeling right now as a developer. <laughs> the, the thing that jumped out about me initially, the container one is that it fits so nicely in like my mental model that I already have about like how CSS works just because it, you know, looks exactly like the media queries that we already 
are so used to using. Do, do you think that that kind of like went having it be very similar to the way people already use media queries and that kind of like went into its design? Definitely. The CSS working group loves to not invent new things. If there's, if there's a path that is similar, we'll totally go down it. Kind of like a look at the picture element. Picture element allows you to specify multiple sources. In those sources, you can pass a media query. You can't pass a container query yet. Well, it's like, well, we, we need that. We need to be able to put a container query in there now. And the syntax is going to look exactly the same. So since it matched, you know, media queries, container queries can kind of squeeze in right where those were and just be like, well, instead of checking the whole viewport, why don't you just check this little section? And so I think that's good, healthy choices by the CSS working group. At the end of that CSS tricks survey, um, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Leah Veru, a W3C technical architecture group member, made some predictions. And so one of them was that subgrid would grow in 2023. Curious, what, what do you think about that prediction? Do you agree, disagree? Subgrid's another one. I've done a lot of playing with it. Uh, it's another one where it seems so tricky on the surface. And then once you use it, you're like, oh, this is really subtle. And it's nice. But like container queries, I feel like people might try to shove it in without just because they want to use something new. And you just got to find those use cases. They'll find you, I think, is a lot of the scenarios with Subgrid. Subgrid is getting worked on by Microsoft on Chromium. It's been getting code uh, commits every couple weeks for months and months. They have a lot of tests. I know Firefox has had Subgrid for a while, and it didn't see a lot of large adoption for some reason. Same with they had Masonry. But I think as we see more tests hit the platform to test Subgrid, like Subgrid is very untested, or it was, we we're adding a whole bunch. Once it's reliable, it's available across browsers, you start to see demos that implement it. I think you'll find uh, some inspiration and use cases for yourself. You'll be like, oh, that would make that Flex layout easier because I was really stretching Flex to make it do this thing. And you're like, oh, Subgrid, I just align this child card to the width of all the other parents' child cards and we're all happy. So yes, I would like to see Subgrid gain more adoption, but I anticipate it will follow similar to container queries in that it'll be really important when you need it, but otherwise it you might not find your reaching for it very often. Yeah. Yeah. Like it might not be the, the first thing that folks are thinking about until they then encounter a problem where it where it's the clean solution. Yeah. And there's I guess at this at this point there's a lot of different ways to do layouts. Do you consider Flex still to kind of be the most popular? A uh, grid has like a a fraction of what Flex has. Gotcha. Do you think? Do you think that'll kind of change in in 2023? Like, do you think Flex is going to stay king? So, I can look at usage of me and my peers of how we do layout now, which is almost entirely grid. Uh, it's not by ch choice. It's not like we intended to go grid more. It's just like as I've used grid more and more and more, it so succinctly solves many of the problems that took a tricky. Flexbox layout. And so I use Flexbox layouts still. It's not like I've gone one or the other, but I do find I use a lot more grid. And so maybe what we're noticing in terms of trends here is that the corpus of the internet over you know 20 years, uh, or even just like the last 10, has really solidified a lot of patterns. And I think we're going to see that it's slow to get out of those patterns and into the new ones. Uh, so I anticipate grid will grow and I, I anticipate it will surpass it. It has too much uh, use in macro layouts and micro layouts, where Flex, I think, really excels at micro layouts. I don't know. Flex can do all the big layouts, too. So 
I just think judging how some of these other things have kind of slowly progressed, we're probably going to look at a pretty slow adoption climb for some of these other things too. It's almost like a, the heyday for modern CSS adoption was CSS3. And now that we're past it, they're, they're incremental changes and not quite as massive. But I don't know, it's so easy to argue that I think CSS is changing so drastically. We're on the cusp of like the most massive shift it's ever had. So maybe that scares people away instead of bringing them in. I'm not totally sure. I agree that it seems like something that'll just be a gradual change over time. You know, here, here at LogRocket, we use a ton of flex. I think it's primarily because most of the ways that we want to display lists end up being 1D, which flex is just like, does well, does naturally so well, just like, you know, one column, it's just, it's so easy to use flex for that instead of grid. But um, before, before flex, like people were hacking layouts together with like tables, right? And like, I don't know when that was maybe the early 2000s, a little bit before I was like involved in web development. But I think maybe it just takes takes time for people to like break those habits of kind of, uh, of, of using layouts for more than what they were designed for. Yeah, I think breaking habits is a really great way to describe it. I've described it as like people are just accustomed to working. You know, like I was mentioning color, they're just used to hex. They're like, I've never felt like hex was broken. And people give me hex. So that's just how I work. I get given it and then I put it in the code and that's how I work with color. <laughs> and it's like, I'm looking, I've been studying color like mad for like three years and uh, I have a very different relationship with color uh, and I'm infatuated with it. It has all these superpowers and all these use cases. And if you're building a design system, it's really powerful to not work inside of HSL or hex or RGB, but to try one of these new spaces that are about to come out. And yeah, I think we'll see a lot of change in color as well, especially as displays get better. Everyone's getting better displays on their desktops. They've had them in their pocket for years. Uh, we want to see those juicy colors come through in our gradients and our, you know, and our, our candy coated buttons. Those things should be really glossy and juicy. You know, let's maximize the the color there. For the color spaces, the perception where they perce- is that what they're called perception based color spaces where. Um, the gradient is like based on not just like, you know, the pure RGB, like mathematically, like evenly spaced colors, but actually like the way that humans see the differences in color. Yeah, that's like back in the 40s, they did a whole bunch of tests on actual humans looking to see what grays they could see, what grays they thought were darker than others. And so you have a human driven color space uh, that's really powerful for all sorts of things. Um, the LCH can do, yeah, it has perceptually linear light so lightness goes from zero to 100 percent in the way that your eye like have you ever done this in hsl where you're like i want a really dark gray and so you're like oh, okay uh five percent lightness you know really dark and you're like oh wow it's really dark and then you add 10 percent you're like hey that's not that much lighter and then meanwhile you want to make a light color like a really light gray and you do hsl like lightness 98 percent it's like barely not white but for some reason those little edges there really change a lot so you had dark that needs a lot of change to be visual uh for you to notice it uh and then lightness little tiny nudges go like a long way and you're like this color space this lightness feels a little hard to work in sometimes and so when you're inside of lch you just if you bump five percent in either direction it is a noticeable amount of five percent it's consistent in all hues also whereas like hsl can do wild stuff depending on the hue and then another added benefit of LCH is that it can use HD colors. So it's not just good for manipulation. It can also reach into the better pixels and the brighter pixels of a screen. It's like a win-win, you know? Of course, like monitors have, have made so many, have so much improvements like the color spaces that, that they can display. So it's only natural that we would want to kind of tap into that with, with the CSS colors that are available. 
and I, it was just cool to see that the color i didn't know that the human eye worked that way in terms of perceiving colors yeah and leah veru who you mentioned earlier i think at the end of that post also was like color revolution is coming she's also one of the main spec editors for color four and five which bring new yeah the new color spaces better gradients uh color functions like uh color mix and stuff like that it's it's an exciting time. I think she also said nesting is going to be big in 2023, and I agree. Then another thing is the the JS or CSS in JS libraries. Do you do you use one of those on your site? My site does not, but I've used many of them, and I have a a talk I want to give in 2023, which is about how to use cascade layers in CSS and JS. Uh, the reason is they're like a match made in heaven. CSS and JS has tons of asynchronous, lazy loaded styles. And when they lazy load, uh, they just get plopped right into the page, right? And then they have to compete with the whole stacking order and order of appearance. Just the whole nine gets really messy. And why not just take that chunk and put it into a layer? Not la so you, you put it into the page wherever you want, but it actually goes way up into a weaker layer up in the, t the stack of your styles. And that is super cool. It would reduce the amount of specificity that you need to put inside of your selectors, which is a benefit of CSS and JS already is being that minimal sort of selector. So yeah, I could totally see a relationship growing with some of these new features and CSS and JS. Same with scope. Uh, at scope is the same deal. So you could dynamically append or asynchronously append the whole chunk of styles into a layer and inside of that layer use at scope to tightly contain those selectors and those styles to just your component. We're in this. That's what I mean. We're entering into like a whole brand new world and you have container queries. The whole component model is getting a lot of support in 2023. And I think we're going to see new patterns, just new confidence show up. That's going to be great. Yeah. Is the scope thing something that's native to CSS? I think I've seen something similar in like a view components, for example, where you can have the the CSS of a view component that only affects those styles only affect the HTML of of that component. Is, is so is that something that's just built into CSS? Yeah. So you you could keep using CSS modules if you want, so they don't have to name things. But at scope has a superpower, which is not only does it trap the scope of something like from your class selector down, you can tell it where to stop as it goes down, which is not something any other you know view can't do that. They could tr try, but I don't, I don't really think they could. It's not like a clever naming strategy can't get you out of uh, the fact that your styles cascade. And with that scope, you can stop the cascade and be like, no, all of these colors that I changed, these fonts that I changed, trap them one level deep in this node tree. And that's it. And that would be like what they call the ad scope donut, where it has an outer. It goes, you know, you can take some bites of the donut and then the middle of the donut's gone. You have styles that can behave in a very, very similar way. That's a very helpful analogy. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess I kind of asked you if you agreed with some of those predictions for CSS in, in 2023. I'm curious, did you did you have any others? I think we're, we're not done seeing interesting new features yet. There is so the, like CSS mixins. It has um, headcount right now, or people are going to spec it out and try to prototype what CSS mixins could be. We have view transitions, which are um, let the browser, you know, f um, flip your animations. That one's really sweet. Um, view transitions. We also have view timeline, where the scroll and the percentage of scroll that someone's at can power an animation. Uh, and then that same feature also lets you know when something comes in and goes out. And you have all this like CSS power to describe the animation out and animation in of stuff. What else is there? So we got, yeah, mix-ins, view transitions, view timeline. Nesting is uh, behind a flag in Chrome. They're trying to push it out the door because uh, Safari already has an implementation too. So we're going to see that in 2023, I hope. Uh, color stuff is about... It's So like not only is all the stuff from 2022 about to like land, 
they're, the plan for the next set is just not stopping. It, there's like full steam forward. They're like really want you to feel that the web has your back when it comes to building something um, and empowering you as a, as a developer to build a custom experience. No, I'm excited for it. I guess for people who are listening, like, I don't know if any, if any people have been like inspired by this and to stay more up to date with like new CSS features, I guess, how would you recommend folks kind of stay tuned into this sort of thing? Nice. That's a great question. Um, so if you want to go, uh, it's not even hardcore mode. I'm like using air quotes, hardcore mode, but you can go straight to the source of Chrome status. So there's a website uh, called Chrome status and you can go subscribe to the CSS changes and the the JavaScript updates. And what you'll do is you'll start getting emails as soon as one of the engineers on Chrome says that, hey, I've been working on this prototype and it's ready for the public to try in Canary. And you'll get an email and be like, new feature. This is like I just the other day, we had new relative units land in the browser, uh, at least in Chrome, which was the um, relative X unit. We had the relative uh, IC unit. And we had the relative line height unit. Um, and these things... I didn't even know we're getting worked on, but I got that email and was like, a brand new thing is available for me to go play with. And so that's how I stay on top of these things. There's also the web.dev website. Web.dev will share stable new features for you. So it's exclusively stable. And if you go to developers.chrome.com, those are experimental features. So you could go to Chrome status for an email right away. You could RSS subscribe to Chrome developers for experimental features as they come out. You could RSS subscribe to web.dev, get stable features as they come out. And then of course, all the normal suspects after that, you know, you could subscribe to my RSS, you could go to Twitter, you could go to, I don't know, at that point, it's kind of uh, all on the air, but that's where I source my stuff and how I get it kind of the fastest is that way. That makes sense. Yeah. So there are a lot of different channels to to continue to hear about this sort of thing. And I, I got to ask, so you were number three on people in CSS list this past year. How did you feel about that? That's awesome. I was so surprised. I was definitely really proud. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I still feel, um, do you, I don't know how old you are, but the only reason it is relevant is I remember I was 26 and I was like, I still feel 18. And then I turned 30 and I was like, I still feel 18. I hear I'm number three in the CSS list of influencers. And I'm like, I'm still just a regular person writing code. Um, I don't feel super. I feel very normal. I, I mess up stuff all the time. And so, yeah, I was very, it was very pleasantly surprised. I was like, oh, wow, uh, it's working. Uh, my, my, they like the way I talk. That's nice. <laughs> I think it's pretty clear that you're you're doing a lot for the community. So uh, we appreciate you. And before we wrap, is there anything you want to plug or where can folks find you online? Sure. Yeah. Uh, sub subscribe to my RSS, my new site, um, nerdy.dev. Um, you'll get all sorts of, I'm trying a thing that I guess it's microblogging, but they're not quite, you know, status updates like you'd get on Twitter. Although there are those as well, like really, really short ones, but my blog posts, I'm trying to keep them like five minutes or less. It's like, powerful demos, succinctly writing them. It's like my natural voice. Whereas like when I write for Google, I have editors that review it and it has to sound like we all talk the same and stuff like that. So it's like my little space to go be me. And so if that sounds interesting to you, I'd say go subscribe to that RSS. Awesome. Yeah. Well, it's been, been great chatting. Um, thanks for coming on and we'll uh, we'll stay tuned to uh, what happens with, with CSS features in, in 2023. Rad. All right. Well, cool. Thanks so much. Thanks. See ya.